So we're 35 days along the way with 15 more, and we're there. God has us counted out, and it certainly is a day of rich meaning for God's people. It actually commemorates the beginning of the New Testament church and all that went with that, and also our engagement to Christ, which culminates in that marriage uh, typified by the fall holy days. So we're looking forward here in 15 days to a very joyous, joyous time. And I hope that we pray toward that with positive strength and energy, uh, that God will bless his people and we can have his face shining on us one of these days soon. Got his sunshine out there, but I want to see his face shining on us. That's, that's what we're after. So hopefully that'll happen before too long. Let's go uh, into Second Corinthians again today. We came down to chapter 7, but at the end of 6, he was uh, admonishing everyone not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, that we have no fellowship with the world out there and with Satan's ways and his world, which is becoming increasingly obvious. I, uh, I saw an article yesterday about that rock singer Madonna uh, that had done a very satanic performance. I think it was in Europe. And they had an article today breaking that down. And it was all about Satanism and about uh, people dying uh, very soon. They will, we won't make it. So they're telling us ahead of time exactly what Satan and the New World Order have in mind for mankind and played it out right there on the stage. It's a terrible thing with satanic garb and attire and horns and all kinds of things uh, showing his all-seeing eye, not God's, but Satan's. So we don't want any part of that, and that's what Paul is telling us here. And he tells us to come out from among them and be separate, and don't touch the unclean thing, and I will receive you. So if we touch the unclean thing, we will not be received. If we get away from it and don't touch it, then he will receive us. And will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. He uses the term Almighty there, not just the Lord, not just God, but Almighty, because he is the one that can empower us and strengthen us to come out of this world and be clean from it so that we can be acceptable sons and daughters to him. And like the prodigal son, he had been out there and rolled around in the world, and that was not a happy time for his father, and it wasn't really a happy time for him when it came right down to it because he wound up being quite unhappy. Uh, I would be fairly unhappy if I were out eating with the pigs. If that's all the food I had and that's all the company I had at that point, uh, things. So then he goes down into chapter seven with that admonition, <clears throat> said, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved. 
Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So the world is full of sin. Satan began sin and is full of sin. And he tells us to depart from that, not to be around it, not to rub shoulders with it, not to get involved in it, not to associate or fellowship with it, but to be apart and to be separate. If you're around sin, uh, sin has a way of rubbing off on you. If you're around people that have a certain proclivity of any particular sin, if you're around them for a while, you begin to think that way. It's just the way the human mind and carnality works. So what is holiness? Holiness is the absolute zero amount of sin. God is holy. He has no sin. Totally holy. And I uh, ask that we consider what God did uh, when he built the tabernacle in the wilderness. Such explicit directions he gave with every little detail having to be just right. And he even gave special skills to the craftsmen so that they might get everything perfect. Uh, on their own, they didn't have the skill to get it that way. Nor do you and I have the skill to be walking perfectly, uh, our flesh and our spirit perfecting holiness without sin. But remember how many cleansings and washings and all the things they went through and what um, Aaron the high priest had to go through in order to even approach the Holy of Holies and to approach God even once a year. He went through all kinds of things that must have been difficult out there in the desert. He didn't have a uh, a shower room. He didn't have the modern amenities we have today. He had a tent out in the desert. And to go through all those washings and cleansings and everything that he and they had to do was uh, pretty involved. So God is being sure that we also cleanse our every thought, that we go through what it takes to reach the perfection of holiness. That is our goal, that is our purpose, to become just like God. And he knows that we need his help and his spirit in order to accomplish that. Receive us. We have wronged no man. Now, he's talking to the Corinthians here. He's he's inspired them a bit to get away from the world and to turn to holiness, the absence of sin, and complete, total obedience to God. And then he says of himself and the rest of the ministry, Receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. So he looked at their record, and I think we can say that today, the ministry has not wronged anyone, we've not corrupted anyone, we're trying to teach you the pure truth as it comes from the Word of God, and haven't defrauded anybody, told them the truth, told them the way it is, and have not taken unfair advantage. I think we here in 
as Herbert Armstrong said, sometimes you go from one, one ditch on one side of the road into the other ditch. And in worldwide, we had become somewhat oppressive with money and asking for money and all that all the time. And uh, I think I kind of went to the other ditch to some degree here, trying to be sure and not defraud anyone, trying to be sure and not ask too much of them. And uh, we gave them land at less than the cost of maintenance, and have had to augment that all the way through. And have tried not to mention money or giving money. You don't hear it here. Uh, there aren't big offertories or taking 15 minutes to ask for money at the beginning of a holy day like we used to do. And all that that we went through. Uh, and maybe we went too far. And then we got into this uh, welfare mentality that some have now. They want everything for free. Not only do they want everything for free, they want everything. So we've not done that. Haven't done it right here to this group. We've tried to be as reasonable and as fair and to give you everything that you have as uh, cheaply as possible. And maybe that's why some of these rebels are still here. <laughs> they know good and well they can't go anywhere else and live as cheaply as they do here. So why do they distrust you and me and are trying to take your land, our land, away from us? Uh, we've never given them any cause to think we're going to run them off or do anything wrong. In fact, we've been over backward to try and not run people off when they really should have been. I just didn't want to take them away from their homes and everything, and I hoped that there would be a change of attitude, but that has not occurred. So instead of being thankful to be here at the price that they're here, they want to remove me and take it all. Now that's kind of the way people had some attitudes back in Paul's day. So he's in a way having to defend himself and the other ministry. He said, I speak not this to condemn you, for I've said before that you are in our hearts to die and live with you. So he's saying, we're together in this. Live or die. That's what we're here for, is for you. Uh, that is the attitude. That's the approach. That's the reason. Would it be easier and more fun in some respects for me to leave here and go somewhere else and not face all that we face here? Yeah. That'd be a lot more fun. But this isn't about fun. This is about being into something that we're here to live and die for, for the kingdom of God. And I am not about to leave you under any circumstances because that's what we're here for, is to live or to die together as God sees fit. So he, that Paul is making that commitment here to these Corinthian people, and to us, to be of the same mind. He says, great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. Now, they were still having troubles, as he'll go on to explain, uh, in the area that he was in. But... He had had to write a 
pretty severe letter of correction in 1 Corinthians to the Corinthian church. And after that, over a period of months, up to a year, it seems to indicate here, he had been receiving good reports from them, and he'll go into that. He's just starting to right now. That his heart was full that he had been hearing good reports. Because that's what you want to hear. And here he was now, instead of correcting, he did a little bit at the, at the beginning because they had not yet uh, forgiven the man who had been caught in a sin and had not accepted him back, so he had to straighten that out the beginning of this letter, but now he's heard that they have changed their attitude. So this went on over a period of months, because it, you didn't get on a text and tell people how things were then. It had to go by a messenger by boat. <laughs> didn't even have carrier pigeons. <coughs> but he was telling other people about how these people had changed. And he was glorying of them. He was telling those where he was at that time and visiting ministers that might come there and go somewhere else a good report of Corinth. Now, it's something like with our children. If they are in a bad attitude, a rebellious attitude, a nasty attitude, whatever, we have to correct them. We have to correct them until their attitude changes, until they become sweet and compliant, cooperative, and obedient. That is the way a child should be. That's the way we as children of God should be. As he says down here a couple of times, of a willing mind, of a ready mind, wanting to do everything we can to please our Father in heaven. Now, that's the attitude your children should have is an attitude of cooperation and willingness and desire to please their parent. Now, we've probably all, at one time or another, owned dogs as children or adults. And with most dogs, I'll say most, I won't say everyone, but with most dogs, they have a very deep desire to please their master. They'll do anything to please you, even if it does a silly thing like rolling over or sitting down or waiting to eat their food, with a little training, if they know that's what you want, that's what they'll do. With a little training, they won't pee on the floor, they'll wait till they get outside, because that's what you they know you want of them. And they'll cross their legs and their eyes and wait a lot of times till you get home, because they don't want to displease you. They want to please you. And that is the attitude we should have as parents, uh, to our children, and we as children to our Father. So what you want is a cooperative, loving, willing to serve, willing to obey, happy to obey attitude. And if there's any kind of rebellion against that, then you correct not until the activity stops that's wrong, but until the look on the face and the pout on the mouth and the whine and the rebellion and the voice changes. And when it becomes compliant and loving and uh, humble, then is when you pick the child up and hug it and love it and dandle it on your knee, because once that attitude is beautiful, you reward him for that. 
Now, I've seen many times where parents would have a rebellious child and they'll pick them up and try to show them love, hoping that changes their attitude. No, it's just the opposite. What it does is give them the feeling that if I have this nasty, mean, rebellious attitude, I get love. If I cry and rebel enough, I get love, I get picked up and told, it's okay, honey, it's okay. No, it's not okay. It's miserable for the kid and you both. So you punish in one form or another until the attitude is right. Then you reward and show love for the new, wonderful, remade attitude that they currently have. That's what Paul was doing here. He corrected them strongly, and then he had to correct them again. And then when they changed their attitude, as he'll show that their attitude was different, then he complimented them, he praised them in the eyes of others, and he rewarded them for it. If you reward bad conduct, all you'll get is bad conduct. Now, God is doing that with the church. He was very unhappy with our apathetic, self-righteous attitudes. And therefore, he began to punish us and to scatter us and put us through all kinds of trials, troubles, and tribulations. And he has even said, when you change your attitude and you become pleasing to me, cooperative and of a ready and willing mind, then I will turn and bless you and smile at you, but not until. That's the way God is, and that's the way he wants the ministry to be, and that's the way he wants every one of us to be and our children to be. So the reward comes when the attitude is right. It's all about attitude. So he says, great is my boldness of speech toward you, Great is my glorying of you. He says, I'm just, I'm turning handsprings here uh, in my joy that I can pass along to others about how much progress you people have made. So now he's complimenting them very highly because of the change in attitude that he had seen. So he says, I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. He says, in spite of all the troubles we still have, I just can't help but sit here grinning like a possum eating bumblebees. It's just so nice to see your attitudes of readiness and willingness and cooperation and kindness and love. It just filled him up in spite of the troubles that he was facing, and he'll mention that. Yeah, next verse. For when we were come into Macedonia... Our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. So he said we were in a very dangerous position. Uh, we never knew when we might be taken, uh, killed, robbed, whatever. Uh, troubled on every side, fighting all around us, and we were living there in fear for our very lives. He said, even in that kind of configuration, I'm just bubbling over because I've heard how 
you have repented and how you're now doing. Nevertheless, God, that comforts those that are cast down, comforts, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So said so we had all kinds of trouble here, but boy, what a joy it was to see Titus coming. And he brought encouraging news from you. He brought encouraging news from wherever he had been. And it just made us feel lighthearted and, and full that there is a God who is delivering and helping here and there. Uh, and now we hear of it. Isn't there, uh, there's some proverbs along those lines. Uh, about how it is like a drink of cold water or something, if I remember the right uh, analogy, to hear good news. You know, far country, here comes somebody, and for once they're bringing good news instead of bad news. Yeah, think about Job there. He just heard all his kids were dead and his cattle were gone. And if somebody had come in and said, Oh, I have good news. He would have probably jerked his head right up. <laughs> what, what's good right now? <laughs> you know? And that's the way Paul felt. Everything around me is fear and fighting and trouble. And here Titus brings good news. We like to hear good news. We hear somebody had a heart attack somewhere, relative, friend, whoever. And then we just sit on pins and needles waiting to hear if they're going to be okay or if they're going to die. No, and oh, what a relief it is when we hear, hey, they're okay, they're going to be all right. Or if we hear of a healing. I, it's always exciting when God's people can share a healing with one another. So Paul was overjoyed to have Titus come. And we need to take this to heart and do what he said up there at the end of chapter 6. Get ourselves away from the world. Have a good report so that people can say, boy, those people are just doing great out there. Wouldn't it be nice? Satan goes to God's throne daily to accuse you and me. Wouldn't it be nice if he couldn't think of a thing to accuse us of? Those people have departed from the world. They're not involved with it. They are serving God with all their heart. And Satan would have to say, man, what am I going to say today? Oh, he'd come up with a solution. If he couldn't find anything we were doing wrong, he would come up with a false accusation. But you know what? God could say, uh-uh-uh-uh. I know better. They're not doing that. Now, when he comes with a accusation that's true, he says, uh-uh-uh-uh. Remember Emmanuel here, who lived a perfect life, and you killed, and now that sin is washed away? So Satan has to come back down here and find something else. But he never gives up, does he? God can say it's under the blood of Christ, forget it. Next day, here he is, got his whole bag full of things that he's going to accuse us of. We need to be holy and without blemish. And then God doesn't even have to say, yes, but my son covered it. He can say, 
Bug off. <laughs> you didn't bring anything true at all. Go away. God says that He is going to accomplish His righteousness in us when He gathers us together. So that is going to be a very, very exciting time. It hasn't happened to the overall church of God yet. It's still very much, too much involved with the world and too much involved with the temptations and sins of the world. And we're going to come together with Christ among us and He is going to lead us into His righteousness and be very, very pleased with us. What a time that is going to be. And Paul was feeling a bit of that right here, that they had improved, they had changed. And I was I was sort of meditating on this a little bit this morning. You know, sometimes we scold a lot, sometimes we point out sins a lot, because we're in a repentant mode, based on Revelation 3 and why we've been scattered. So that has been a paramount part of the speaking and preaching and teaching over these last 23 years is that we heed the prophets and do as they say and turn to God. And to point out all the things that the prophets say are wrong with the people at the end time. But on the other hand, we have to consider we're still here. There's still people out on the telephone line who are listening and caring and being faithful and true and doing their best to be what they ought to be, even as we hear. And I have to look at you and admire your patience and your tenacity, your committedness and faithfulness to God to still be here working on yourself and working on preparing ourselves to help God with the purposes He has in mind. So we know why we came, and we're working toward it. And, you know, we may have our faults and our weaknesses and our troubles and our difficulties still, but you can't discount the endurance. God says, blessed are those who endure to the end. And such pressures have come and will come that makes it very, very hard to endure what we have to go through. But you're on the, you're on that train. You're still here. You're still doing it. And that counts a lot with God. You still have a ready and a willing mind. We'll get to those statements here in just a minute. But anything we need here, anything we ask, anything needs done, some service done for somebody, all you have to do is pick up the phone and say, hey, we need some help over here. And people converge to get done whatever needs done. And that spirit of service and a ready and a willing mind is just precious in the eyes of God. That we're willing to pitch in and help each other and help each other collectively as a church. Uh, that's precious in the eyes of God. It's of a ready and willing mind that Paul describes as we go on here. We'll see more of it. I'll mention it a little bit ahead of time, but, but that's what God's looking for. He's looking for an attitude of willingness and desire 
to do whatever needs to be done to help and then ultimately to please him and his son so that hopefully we can come to that day when the father and the son can say, I am well pleased with you, my children, as he did to Christ after what he went through. Now, we're not going to go through quite what he went through, but that doesn't mean we haven't been through a lot and that we may yet go through a lot. Just as Paul, when he wrote about his joy toward them, was still going through physical, mental, spiritual danger. Verse 6, Nevertheless, God, that comforts those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So he was so happy that Titus was coming and bringing good news. And not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. When he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. Now, that Corinthian church, as you recall, was already divided. They had divisions among themselves, he said, as it had been reported to him. And he said, you're taking... Uh, favorites among the ministries. Some say I'm of Apollos, some say I'm of Paul, some say I'm of Christ. And he corrected them for that. We're all to be of Christ and we're all to be for those whom he sends to be our servants and to help us. We're not supposed to be playing favorites and pitting one against the other and creating confusion and division. That doesn't work. So he corrected them on it. And some of those attitudes were pretty deep-seated. Now, when we get talking once in a while, and sometimes I think we go where we should not go, I understood it uh, when the church first was scattered. Everybody had their stories to tell about how wrong it was in their local congregation and how this preacher was that way and this one was that way and how wrongly they had done the congregations. And we were feeling the immediate pain for a lot of things that had occurred that perhaps should not have occurred, but did. So I took that in stride and didn't say a whole lot about it, but there came a point where I began to say, hey, the past is past. Why do we need to relive and review all that about such and such a preacher was just a total scalawag? Why do we need to dwell on the negative? Why do we need to go back and say how bad things were? Why don't we look at now and say how, how good are things going to be tomorrow? Isn't that what God tells us to do? Don't look back. Look forward. Look to that which will be, not that which has been. Because that can be discouraging and frustrating and frightening. And, and it doesn't do anybody any good. It's... 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years old. Why dwell on that? It's the past. Can't do a thing about it. Neither could the poor old guy that did those things do you do anything about it. Chances are he's dead by now. <coughs> or so old he doesn't remember it. And if you told him about it, he wouldn't, he'd say, I wasn't that way. And it certainly doesn't do us any good to rehearse it all. Living in the past accomplishes nothing. Is that what you think about as the past? 
your past, somebody else's past, all those things past. That's not where we ought to dwell. I very rarely think about things in my past. Many of them weren't so hot in the first place. And even the good parts, what good does it do me now? All I can be concerned about is today and tomorrow. That's all that matters. Now, maybe there was some lessons learned back there I need to remember, but I don't have to go through all that stuff. You see, people, all they can think about, sometimes old people get that way especially, they can't remember anything that happened since breakfast, but they can remember something that happened 70 years ago. So that's what they think about. But, you know, that's because of loss of memory and dementia, and that's what their mind is still capable of. So that's where they go. And I don't have a problem with that because that's all they have. It's all they have left. The present they can't remember. <clears throat> so when I hear you talking about all that stuff in the past, from now on I'm going to assume you have dementia. Uh, that that's all you have left to talk about. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek to some degree. But why are we not talking about God and the kingdom and the things that are about to come that we can be part of? Why don't we dwell on the good that is to come instead of good or bad that has been? That doesn't do any good. Now, Paul here, once they change their attitude, is no longer talking about that which had been bad. Now he's talking about how happy he is that they have changed and grown and moved forward and have different attitudes. Things that are positive, things that are good, dwell on these things. You know, God says when we're in the kingdom of God, there's going to be an epitome of what I'm just talking about. He says... Things are going to be so good, and the outlook so good, that you won't even consider thinking about what happened back here. Now, you and I do have some questions that we'd like answered about, well, what happened back there, or what happened to him, or, you know, I have a feeling we won't even care at that point. It'll be so exciting to be sitting there with 144,000 in the light of God and Christ's face that all we can think of is what is there and what we're about to do in the world down here that needs our help, our children that we're to come and nourish and succor and help. Some of these things, that I'd sure like to ask old so-and-so about what really happened back. I don't think you'll care. I don't think you'll even think of it. He says the past will not be remembered nor thought of. Yeah, forget it. Now, in some ways, apart from sin and conduct of men, I would like to know the story that goes all the way back of the whole creation of the universe and the earth and when and about all these big bones you see laying around, uh, you know, and how God did it all to 
give honor and glory to him that he was able to do the incredible things he did to give us what we have today that we're quickly polluting and ruining. Now that part we might want to go back and see. And since God is eternal, and there is no time in that sense, as we understand it, with him, then he is the beginning and the end. And it might be that we just simply come to have that understanding upon being changed of the past, the present, and the future in a circle. I don't know how to explain it. But that which has been, he is the beginning and the end. And if we are like him, then we understand the beginning and the end. So what's the question anymore? Do we need a video, or does God just simply give us that capacity to understand? Well, looking back can get you turned into a pillar of salt. We have a good example of that, or a bad example, I guess you could say. Uh, but we like to look back at each other. We like to look back at ministers. We like to look back at all these things instead of looking forward. Now, Paul was putting that behind him and moving forward. Didn't he say one time when he was a child, he did childish things, and now that he was an adult, he put away childish things? People have said, well, that means he was a parent. Uh, no, you teach him to put their own toys away. But uh, jokes aside, we look forward in a pure way to what is to be, not that which has been. Anybody can dwell on the past. How many can control their mind enough to dwell on the future and to keep their mind looking forward? But that's what he's doing here. He's just so happy that Titus showed up and gave him a good report and how they had changed and their attitude was good. And now he's complimenting them. Uh, pats on the back all the way around the things that improved. Uh, he was so happy to see what? Their earnest desire, their mourning for what they had been, and sometimes we have to mourn in order to change, your fervent mind toward me. So some of those who had been of Apollos or said, I don't want any ministers, just give me Christ, had changed their, their whole attitude toward Paul. Now that's amazing in a way because he sent a very corrective letter and some people by nature could be very offended by that and say, I told you so. Yeah, that's Paul. He's always jumping down our throat. They didn't do that. They took the correction they changed, changed their attitude. Now they had a fervent mind and a positive attitude toward Paul after what he had written to them. And they hadn't gotten this letter yet. He was still writing it. But they had already changed their attitude. And that just delighted him. Doesn't it delight you when you have an altercation or a difference of opinion or a fight? with another human being, be it your child, your relative, your wife, your husband, a friend, whatever, isn't that a frustration? And if they change their attitude towards you and say, hey, you know, I was kind of upset with you, but I got over that. I'm sure glad to see you. I love you. Well, 
doesn't that just kind of pick you up when somebody comes that was yesterday, they'd spit nails and would have cussed you if they thought they could, and then they have a completely different demeanor the next day and say, man, it's nice to see you. I got over my attitude. I took it to God in prayer, and I just simply, I didn't just ask him to punish you. (laughs) I asked him to give me a kind, loving attitude toward you in spite of our difference, and he did. And I'm just so happy to be your brother, your sister, your friend. That just, that would make your day. Really would. Well, that's how he was feeling. I rejoice the more. Verse 8, for though I made you sorry with a letter, he's admitting, he says, I, I know I made you sorrow. I know I was tough on you. I know it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't fun. I do not repent, though I did repent. He says, I'm not feeling sorry that I wrote that letter. It needed to be done. Now, within myself, I thought, oh, my, do I have to send this? Do I have to do this? This is going to hurt them. It's going to make them... Search themselves. It's going to have to make them, force them to change if they want to be part of God's church. So it was a very serious letter about a very serious sin and very serious attitudes about them not hating sin. So he says, I'm not repenting of that. It had to be done. I'm glad I did it. But I felt bad about having to do it. Somebody told me, well, you sure gave a tough sermon. I don't repent of that. Just read the Word of God and said that's what God says. Sometimes it's tough. That's what Paul's saying. That was tough. And I'm not going to back off from it, but I felt bad to have to do it. For I perceive that the same epistle has made you sorry. He says, I I can see by what I've heard that it had the effect that I hoped it would have. I had to do it, and I hoped it would work, and it did. Though it were, uh, sorry, but though it were, but for a season. I mean, we, we move beyond correction, don't we? Correction comes, we have our problem with it because we are full of ego, vanity, self, self-righteousness, and we do not want to be corrected. We don't want any idea that we might not be what we would like people to think we are. I worded that carefully. We don't want our image corrected or tarnished. Now, we may know we have faults and problems, and we might even know the person is right. But it cracks our veneer. It changes and distorts what we would like to project people to see. So being corrected is something that is very, very difficult for humans to accept. They just don't like it. They don't like to be told they're wrong. Boy, they'll bristle and their their back will come up and the hair will raise on their neck and and they're ready to fight if you indicate that maybe they aren't what they ought to be or they'd like you to think they are. So he said, it did make you sorry. 
it did change your attitudes. Uh, but it's only for a season, and you get over it. He says, now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry. He wasn't sitting there crowing and taking vengeance and saying, I'm sure glad I put it to you. That wasn't his attitude. But there are people that are like that. If I can give you what for, then I feel good about that, and I'll go brag to somebody about what I put you through. That's the wrong attitude, too. You think Christ is bragging to his Father about what he's put the church through? I think not. He made us sorry with Revelation 3, and by scattering us and doing what Revelation 3 says would happen. And he just turned his head away and said, I can't look at that. Oh, my. Here's the message. Here's what I'm going to do. Now I've done it. And when they change after a season of being this way, then I'm going to cry tears of joy and turn to you and say, Father, it worked. They've repented. Wow. That's what he's working in us, is repentance. So he says, now rejoice. Not that you were made sorry. I'm not, I'm not rejoicing over that. But that you sorrowed to repentance. That the sorrow that I had to lay on you accomplished something. It helped. You changed. Now sometimes initially, when we are corrected, we might get our back up a little. But if we think it through, and we analyze it reasonably, logically, and compare what's being said with the Word of God and our conduct or thoughts, we might come to the point where we say, you know, i got to admit that's right, or at least it's partially right, and amend whatever we need to amend to change whatever it is that needs changed. So he says, you were sorrowful to repentance, that is, to change. You, you began to change. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. So they would have been disfellowshipped, might have had to put the whole congregation out, if they didn't change their attitude. Not just the guy that was sinning, but not for, but not putting sin away is a sin. And he tells us we are to be holiness, perfection and holiness. Put away sin. And had they continued to sin, he might have, he, he already said, I, I'm either going to come and, and be nice or I'm going to come with a club. He'd already told them that in First Corinthians, in First Corinthians. But he was so relieved that instead of having to club him, he can now say, I'm glad you changed. I'm so glad you changed your attitude. After a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us and nothing. We don't have to correct you further. Uh, and then he makes a very important point in verse 10. For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation. Not to be repented of. Once you, once you have sorrow or sadness over sin, then you change, which is a step toward salvation. 
Now that's what godly sorrow does. But the sorrow of the world works death. Now you correct somebody out in the world. What do you get? Animosity, ego, a fight. They'll turn down what you said. They may feel, they may feel bad, but they don't change anything. They don't have the Spirit of God that enables them to change. We talk about the term enablement with people who have addictions and various problems. And in most cases, the only way or only direction you can enable them is to continue in and get worse in whatever their addiction is. That's the direction they want enablement. They want to be what they are, and perhaps even worse. Now, they might have a slight desire to change and do better, but it isn't strong enough to do anything about. So they go to people who are like they are so they can feel comfortable being a drunk with another drunk, or an addict, a drug addict with another drug addict, or whatever. That's their comfort zone. And if you try to pull them out of that comfort zone, it's not going to make them happy, and it's not going to do anything to help them. Because that kind of worldly sorrow works death. You see, they don't have an answer. They don't have God in heaven to look to. They don't have His Spirit to help them change their attitudes and their mind. And therefore, if you make them feel bad about what they're doing... All they'll do is feel bad and be more discouraged. It doesn't lead to repentance and godliness because there's no Spirit of God there to lead them that direction. So the only direction they have is feeling sorry for themselves. And that's what they do, is go feel sorry for themselves, but they don't turn it around. Now, we wish sometimes as parents of children that we raised in the church. Now, most children of most old-time church members are not converted and are not in the church today. Very, very few. But we try to raise them right. And we encourage them sometimes to turn to God. But they don't know God. They know some doctrines, They know about some feasts. They know about Saturday. They know some things. But they don't know God. So you can tell them, go pray to God, and that doesn't mean anything to them, really. It's an emotion. Maybe you prayed with them and they prayed as they were kids or whatever. But if they were never converted, they don't understand God and the Spirit of God. And then going to pray to God ultimately means nothing because they don't have real contact with God. Now, maybe, if they got truly to the point where they began to pray fervently for God to help them out of things, seek and you'll find, there might be a few cases where it'll happen. But he has chosen not to call most of our children in this age. Now, we try to teach them right, and that does not... Uh, contradict the scripture that says 
Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Because it will be easier, perhaps, for that child, when the millennium starts, if he lives that long, to say, oh, there's peace, plenty, and prosperity, and it's tied to the Sabbath and the holy days. And going to the feast brings rain, and not going doesn't bring rain. And they began to understand, and they began to be converted in mind and have a different attitude because they'll be led by the Spirit of God at that point. And then when you talk to those that were your kids back here, ah, now they're ready to listen. But not until they go through hell on earth and death in most cases, although God might preserve some of our children through the tribulation, some have to live through in order for there to be a hundred million people left when Christ returns. So some of them will live. Some Israelites will live. Will our children? I don't know. They might. But so what if they don't? A thousand years is a day. So only a day later, beginning of the great white judgment, judgment, you'll see them. And when they're brought back, and comb the dirt out of their cob, their hair, they'll say, hey, uh, what's going on today? And you'll say, kingdom of God, you can be part of it. Oh, you mean that stuff you taught me back when I was a kid? Yeah, that's, that's the one. Your, drink, your, your drinking buddies all died too, and so did your needle friends. So did your adultery friends. So did your uh, thieves and rascals and murderers friends. They're all, they all died. And now they're going to go this way. I don't think it does too much good to agitate over our children. I have some that grew up in the church. They still love me and have some respect for me. Uh, and we get along okay. But they're so far afield in what they understand and believe at this point, most of them, that uh, there's no sense. So we talk about the kids and the dogs and the cats. And that's about it. Because to talk to them about what I believe and what I'm doing and what we're doing here sounds crazy. It just sounds crazy. So why why do I waste my time? I don't. Won't do any good. Now, one of them at the moment seems to be kind of waking up because he got involved in a really weird kind of a Protestant thingy and uh, a really weird minister whom I've testified against. And now they've come out of that and they're trying to just read the Bible and see what God has to say and... Uh, I, I'm amazed at the progress they're actually making at this point. But it wasn't something I did. They went somewhere they shouldn't be, and they found out very painfully that's where they shouldn't be. And they began to come out of that. And now I might be able to help when they ask a few questions. But I'm still not going to push what I'm doing and what I believe and what you believe on them at this point. Because it'll still sound sound strange. So all I can say is, find God. I'm your dad, I'm here. <laughs> find God. And I'll still be here.
but I can't help them. Uh, worldly sorrow does not bring repentance. They can feel oh so bad about what they are, but all they'll do is be, be depressed and stay there until somehow, some way, it comes from within them. Not something you try to plant in them, but comes from them that maybe God will relate to and begin to work with them. You can't put it in them. You can't plant it in them. It has to be something that comes from within their heart and mind where they truly start seeking answers and seeking God. Until then, there's no hope. And anything you can say to them or do to them or do for them will be futile, will do no good until they begin to truly find God on their own. Then they might look to you as a parent a little, but it's got to be between them and God. You can't do it. So he says, godly sorrow works repentance to salvation. You have the mind of God, you have the Spirit of God, and I am so overjoyed that I corrected you on something that God says, and you corrected it, you changed it, you fixed it. But somebody in the world, they wouldn't have fixed it. That kind of sorrow just leads to death. For behold, this self-same thing, that you sorrowed after a godly sort. Now, what did it do? When they got corrected, and it began to change their minds, and they began to say, you know, I have to admit it, Paul was right. I've got to change my thinking. What did that do to them? He says right here, what carefulness it worked in you. Yes, what clearing of yourselves. Yes, what indignation. Yes, what fear. Yes, what vehement desire. What zeal, what revenge. In other words, it woke you up. You began to be fervent on fire Christians instead of sort of going along with the world that was around you and accepting sin that is the kind of sin that's out in the world. And after I sent that blistering letter... Here's the attitude that occurred. And you couldn't have done this without the Spirit of God. If it had been worldly sorrow that he said, yeah, Paul just getting on us. Forget Paul. We're okay. We're, what we're doing is okay. No. They became more careful. If I give you a blistering sermon on the Sabbath and doing some of the things that people tend to allow themselves sometimes to do on the Sabbath, they'll travel, they'll watch TV, they'll seek their own pleasures as opposed to seeking God, uh, do little work here and there. Well, I'm not really working, but whatever. Kind of compromise with it a little bit. And if I gave a blistering sermon and showed you in Scripture, that's not the way to do on the Sabbath. You should be more careful than that. If you saw that in the Scripture and you heard it and were reminded of it, it would make you more careful not to let things slip that you might tend to let slip. What carefulness. What indignation. You got upset at yourselves. You said, man, is that really what we were thinking? 
Oh, wow. No wonder he wrote us a nasty letter. What fear? They, fe they feared losing salvation. They feared more trouble than a club coming from Paul. And then with that came vehement desire. They really began to work on changing themselves, growing and overcoming. Vehement desire. Not lukewarmness, but really motivated to overcome. He uses the next word. What zeal. Zealousness. You know, you look at somebody and say, wow, they're zealous. Ever watch Beaver build a dam? Man, they're just, they cut and gnaw and fell trees all night long. And they work at it. And if there's a hole in there, then they become what we've termed busy beavers. We have those analogies because that's the way beavers do. If the dam's about to wash away, they get busy right now with sticks and mud. And Paul says, you're like these busy beavers. Man, suddenly you got zealous. The kingdom of God could be slipping away from you. It was slipping away from us in Worldwide. Worldwide died. It was Sardis. And we were like bumps on a log. So he's put us through all of this to create zeal and carefulness. How's it working? How's it working? Have I, over the years, just become another voice? Oh, yeah, Daryl's getting excited again. No. I have to get that way because I'm still not what I ought to be and you're still not what you ought to be. And we need the correction of God's Word week by week so that we might become more careful and fear to lose out and become more zealous. And he's saying, that's what the correction did for you. So he's very, very happy in complimenting on the change in their attitudes. In revenge. What were they taking vengeance on? Not each other, not on Paul. They were taking revenge on themselves and their past and what they had done. And they were exhibiting that revenge by changing and not being that way anymore. They got tough on themselves, in other words, and fixed it. In all things, you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. You've cleared yourselves. Isn't it nice if you had a tra traffic ticket and you took it to the court and the judge said, yeah, I'm looking at this. I'm going to waive the fine. You're clear. What kind of a feeling does that give you? Or maybe even when you get, when the officer walks up to your car and says, I'd like to see your registration and your insurance, please, and your driver's license. And then he goes back and he gets to your car and he says, you say, oh my. Yeah, I was going that fast. Yeah, I'm going to get a ticket and it's going to cost me 300 bucks and I'm not going to be happy. My insurance is going to go up and all this stuff's going through your mind. And he walks up and says, I'm feeling pretty good today. I think I'm just going to give you a warning and let you go. I'm going to clear you of this. Don't worry about it anymore. <sighs> oh, what a feeling of relief and clearance and happiness and joy. 
He says, you've cleared yourselves. You quit it. You changed your attitude. Now your conscience is clear. Isn't it a nice feeling when sometimes you have a bad conscience about something? You knew you shouldn't have had that attitude. You knew you shouldn't have said what you said. And you go to God, you get on your knees, and you pour your heart out and say, I am so sorry, Father, I messed up again. Please forgive me. And you do it in a heartfelt, meaningful manner with the true intentions of not doing that again. And you feel cleared. But I'm, I'm okay with God again at this point. I, I love to feel that I'm okay with God. And I hate it when I fear that I'm not okay with God. It scares me. So he says, okay, people, you've cleared yourselves. Forget this. Let's move on. Wow. This must have been good to read when they got this second letter, don't you think? They read this, all of them. Probably had it read to them by the minister who was there. And they thought, ah, sure glad Paul's feeling better toward us. Verse 12, Wherefore, though I wrote to you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong. I wasn't there to defend or protect that person, nor for his cause, his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you and the sight of God might appear to you. He says, this isn't really all about the guy that had the problem. This is about you and the way you reacted to the problem. And then when the problem was fixed, the way you reacted to that by not forgiving and moving on. And now, despite having to correct you at that at the beginning of this letter, Titus has come and told me that you changed your whole attitude and approach, and now I'm happy with you. So that's what it was all about, was you having the right attitudes. Therefore, we were comforted in your comfort. Yes, and exceedingly, the more joyed we, we for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. He said, Titus came there, visited, and he saw what a wonderful change of attitude and approach that you had, and it just excited Titus. And he was still excited by the time he got off the boat and joined us here. He was refreshed by you. Now, after people that were in a bad attitude and divided, for them to have responded that well to what Paul wrote had to be refreshing to Titus and Paul and everybody. Aren't you happy when your children turn and change their attitude. I doubt if the father of the prodigal son was real happy when his son says, give me my inheritance. I don't want to stay here anymore. I'm tired of working for you. I don't like my brother's attitude. I want to go do my own thing. His dad knew him, knew his attitude. He thought, oh boy. But all he's going to do is sit here and be rebellious. I guess he better go learn on his own. No help from mom and daddy. Go learn on his own. Whatever lessons he needs to learn. Now, we don't like to see our kids go through that, do we? 
We want to kind of try to help them out of it. We want to try to try to help them change. You can't do it. So he gave him his money and turned him loose. Go party. If that's what you want to do, go party. And you're not going to have to go party broke. You can go party with your inheritance. Don't you dare come back here in the shape you're in. And he didn't. He went out and partied until he was a skid row bum. He was homeless on the sidewalk, to use modern terminology. Defecating in the streets like they are in San Francisco now. That's where he was. He was actually in the mud, in the muck, eating with the pigs which is a step even worse. Did his father come and say, well, I think I'll bail you out of that pig pen? Nope. Didn't do it. He waited till the kid said, this isn't so hot. I don't think I like this. It smells bad. And the food's lousy. And the only thing I have to cozy up to to get warm is this old boar hog over here. This is pretty bad times. Nothing to eat that's edible, no comfort, no help, just slop. I think I'll go to my father at home. Oh, there's a thought. So he did. Father wasn't there encouraging him. His aunts, uncles, cousins weren't there encouraging him. It's something that had to come to him personally. And when it came, then the capacity to do something about it sprung from within him, not from any outside source. And that's the only place it can come from. You can be a sinner. You can be in a bad attitude. You can have come, people come and accuse you. You can have people come and encourage you. You can have people come and try to help you. And it will do no good whatsoever, whatever they do, until you say, this is my problem. I must fix this. You can't fix them. They have to fix themselves. Now that's what... These Corinthians had done. Paul said, this is what you are. This is what you need to do. Go fix it. And in this case, having the Spirit of God, they did go fix it. He didn't come hold their hand. He did say, I am coming to see you, and I'm either going to come and speak nicely, or I'm going to bring a club. It's up to you. So he put the ball in their court and walked away. Well, that's what God has done with us. He said, you're self-righteous, you're Laodicean, you're lackadaisical, you're warm, not cold or hot. I'm walking away. I'm turning my face from you. said it in several scriptures. I'm turning my face from you. Go away. I can't stand you. 
When you straighten up, come talk to me. When you're ready to seek me in my way, your elder brother, your father, when you're ready for that, let's talk. Now, where are we? Is it time to have that talk? Or the pig's not still too bad. We can still rub shoulders with the world. We can still mix with the unclean. Do we have to see their violent movies? Their sexually explicit immorality? Do we have to play their violent games? Do we have to be involved in satanic activities and music? These main rock stars, like Britney Spears, Beyonce, Madonna, there's others, many, many others, who actually worship Satan openly, and they have satanic symbols on their clothes when they go sing. And you're going to listen to that? They're satanically inspired. Come out of her, my people. Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. Don't let the world touch you. Stay away from this world and the decadence and sin and the violence instead of using it for entertainment. God isn't entertained by the crap he sees going on on this earth. I'll guarantee you. He is so unentertained by it, he is going to destroy most people just like he did in Noah's day. And if we're going to be like the world, we'll be destroyed like the world. That's the way it is. He's not going to permit it in his kingdom. You might permit it in your life and in your mind, but it's not going to be permitted in the kingdom of God. That's going to be a happy place, a joyous place. It's going to be a place where there's no crime, no violence, no sin. It'll be peaceful. Happy. And he will not tolerate anything else at all. So, what's it going to be? Well, be like these people. They responded properly, they did something about it. We were comforted in your comfort, and exceedingly the more joyful we uh, joyed for the joy of Titus. Because his spirit was refreshed by you all. Isn't it nice when you go to somebody and and their attitude is such and their demeanor and their approach is such that you just feel good when you walk away from them. That it was so refreshing to be around them. Sometimes you go to people and they're down and they're out and feeling sorry for themselves and murmuring and grousing about how bad things are. And when you walk away you just feel like, ooh, that was really worthwhile sarcastically. When people are in touch with you and me, do they feel better when they walk away or worse? Does it refresh them to be around you? That's why we need to renew the Spirit of God within ourselves day by day so that when people come into contact with us, their spirits will be lifted instead of dropped. They don't want to hear about how nasty things are and how bad you feel for yourself and all the stuff that we do and talking about others in a down way. 
negativity. How does that make you feel good? Doesn't. Refresh people. Isn't that what all the advertisers say? Refresh is best, is one of them that comes to mind. They want you to be refreshed. This is the freshest beer or the freshest pop on earth. This one will make you feel all bubbly and like you're on a beach with, you know, on and on and on it goes. Because they understand that we like to feel good. And they also understand that a lot of the time we don't feel good. So they're going to make money by telling us that whatever their product is, when we get on with it, we're on a high. Oh boy, do I feel good after having that pop. The world knows that. They understand that. Do we? Are we an advertisement for God's kingdom and how refreshing it will be? For if I have boasted anything to you, him of you, I am not ashamed. I'm, I'm happy I can give a good report of you. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting, which I made before Titus, is found to be true. I told Titus you'd be okay, you'd come through, that I'd get good reports, and I did. Wow. And his inward affection is more abundant toward you while he remembers the obedience of you all. He was thinking about, not about their sins, but about their obedience and how they changed and how everything was so much better. How with fear and trembling you received him. They knew they'd done wrong. They knew they'd been corrected. And now they feared more. But they changed their attitude and they respected who he was, the job he had, the position he held, and they came with fear and trembling to approach him and say, you know, we fixed this. And then Titus said, wonderful. I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. Now, that's a true joy to a minister is when he sees somebody with a problem and he goes out and he works with that problem person and they fix it. And they say, you know, I whipped it. It's done. It's fixed. And that gives you the most wonderful feeling of accomplishment in that your effort is not going to waste. That it's helpful. What a, what a way to go home at night. I can think back, you know, there have been many times when I talked to somebody on a personal visit back when I had lots and lots of hundreds of people in congregations. And they're depressed and suicidal or, you know, on a downer. And that really picks me up and makes me go home feeling joyful. You know what I mean? You're, you're sad, you're frustrated, you think, man, I worked... I sat there and talked with that person for three hours and actually held their hand and I didn't do a bit of good. That's a wonderful way to go home and look forward to dinner. And then you have another one that says, man, I sure screwed up, but I went to God and I got it fixed. That is something I've moved beyond. And then you say, oh, man, what a relief. How happy to see that person get past that 
and their conscience is clear, and they're serving God with excitement again. Now that's how you want to go home at night as a minister after you've been out visiting people all day. What a contrast. And I can remember both of those. And I certainly like the happy one better. And I want us to make God and Christ so happy that they turn and smile and laugh and say, I'm sure happy to see you here. Let's move forward in love. That's the way Paul was writing this.